0: We Are Still Alive by Malcolm McConnell. Long after experts abandoned hope, a brave band of rescuers refused to give up the hunt for the earthquake's survivors. Sprawled across pine-covered ridges in the cool highlands of the Philippine island of Luzon, the resort city of Baguio was quiet on the afternoon of July 16, 1990. At around 4.30pm, Pedrito Die, a cook at the luxurious Hyatt Terraces Hotel Complex, was resting on a chair in the hotel's gym after a strenuous workout. The gym was in the basement of an 11-storey apartel tower of guest rooms and apartments. Adjacent to the tower were seven floors of rooms that rose like steps. At 26, Pedrito was stocky with a quietly confident manner. Beginning as a teenage kitchen helper, he had advanced a second cook. He and his wife, Adela, had a two-year-old son and Pedrito was proud that his success had brought the family modest prosperity. Three floors above, cleaner Louisa Jingjing Mallorca, 20, waited for a lift. Her friend William Tan, 32, a casino dealer, joined her. Behind them, security man Arnel Calabia, 26, had just taken up his post at the guard station table. Arnell and William were like protective elder brothers to Jingjing. Jing. Suddenly, the carpeted floor began swaying violently. The overhead lights went out, shrouding the hall in blackness. A savage vertical bounce followed. Earthquake, yelled Arnell. Stay where you are. He had experienced tremors before and had no doubt that the modern high-rise would weather this one. But now the darkness echoed with the crack of shattering concrete and the rumble of buckling floors. Then the floor collapsed and they plummeted into blackness. Ah now, Jing Jing called out, William, where are you? In the basement gym, Pedrito Dai was rising from the chair to get his coat when the floor began to shift. The lights went out and the room was filled with a thunderous rumble. Pedrito fought to stay upright as the floor heaved like a crazy trampoline. He staggered through the darkness towards the corridor. Others crowded behind him as a second violent tremor hit. Through a distant door, Pedrito saw the tower of the apartel twist and collapse like a stack of child's blocks. Above the crashing roar, he could hear co-workers crying and gasping for breath. He coughed as his lungs filled with cloying dust, as thousands of tonnes of rubble smashed through the floors above and battered down the ceiling and walls. Then Pedrito felt something large and soft pressing across his back and forcing him down onto his hands and knees. A mattress stored in the corridor miraculously shielded him. Pedrito arched his back against the mattress, desperately trying to form an airspace. Then the world twanged and jolted again in a ruthless series of aftershocks. Jingjing Jing Majorca tumbled in the landslide of smashed masonry. Finally, she crashed to a stop on a rough slab. Broken chunks of concrete around her formed a pocket, narrower than the boot of a small car. She felt William and Arnell wedged beside her. With bleeding hands, Jingjing Jing explored their little cave. A concrete beam resting on broken slabs and the guard station formed a precarious roof. William lay beneath the table, his legs near Jingjing, Jing, one shoulder and his head against Arnell's chest. Are you okay? Jingjing Jing asked. I'm hurt, William answered with a groan. My stomach, my chest. Jingjing Jing twisted to her side, struggling to shift the debris from William's body, but she could not budge the heaviest chunks. She heard Arnel trying to reach under the table to free William. I've got only my left arm free, Anel said. My right hand's jammed under the beam. I can't move it. Jingjing could hear the despair in Arnel's voice. Together, the three young people began to pray aloud Our Father, who art in heaven. Engineer Andres Marzan, safety manager of a gold mine at Balatok, 16 kilometers southeast of Baguio struggled from his company home down the debris-choked road towards mine headquarters. Balatok had been spared the worst of the quake, but aftershocks were triggering about a hundred landslides. Marzan went to the office of the mine's operations vice president, Dominador Valencia, who said, We must send rescue teams to Baguio. The two big hotels are down. Marzan jotted notes as Valencia organised the rescue force. Get us our best volunteers, Valencia said. Men with experience and guts. Marzan shuddered as the image of high-rise hotels collapsed into rubble filled his mind. He knew he faced a terrifying challenge. Day two. Pedrito Dai thrust his muscular shoulders against the mattress, trying to move the debris crushing him. After a long time, he felt a sharp chunk shift and he was able to roll over onto his shoulder. He was covered with dust and was desperately thirsty. He forced his thoughts towards his wife's warm smile, to his small son's bright eyes. He had to live for them. Arnel Calabia bit his lip, trying to dull the searing pain throbbing up his arm from his trapped right hand. William Tan's head thrashed Arnell's chest. Groaning, William squirmed against the debris crushing him inside the guard table. Then Arnel was jolted by Jingjing Mallorca's excited voice. Listen, she cried, there are people up there. They heard the whine of engines, then echoes of words. Please help us, Arnel yelled. We are still alive. When Arnell was exhausted, Jingjing Jing took up the cry. After she weakened, they all listened for any sign of the rescuers. But the only sound was a dull rumble as the ruins shifted in yet another aftershock. Day three. The miners arrived at the Hyatt from rescue operations at the other collapsed hotel. They used pneumatic jackhammers to chop through the concrete slabs and oxyacetylene torches to cut the thick steel-reinforcing bars. Also on hand were volunteers from the Philippine Military Academy and elsewhere, who had already pulled more than 30 survivors from the ruins. The victims' anxious relatives gathered at the rescue site, tearfully pleading with the miners to work faster. Day four. Pedrito tried once more to picture his wife and small son, his parents, and his relatives, all of whom he felt certain were standing vigil outside. But his mind kept returning to the thirst that seared his throat. Please, Lord, send me water, Pedrito prayed. Moments later, a trickle of bitter, chalky rainwater dripped from the rubble above. He opened his mouth like a baby bird to catch the precious drops. I will live, he vowed. At the same time, Arnel was screaming hoarsely for help through his thirst. Jingjing, meanwhile, tried to comfort William. Raindrops channelled down and she filled a small plastic bowl that she found beside her for her injured friend, but William's internal injuries were dragging him relentlessly towards death. "'Let's pray again,' Jingjing suggested. Hail Mary, they began, but William's voice grew weak before they had completed the first prayer. Day five. Teams of miners had bored five tunnels into the ruined hotel. For safety, the engineers had limited the shaft size to 60 centimetres in diameter, which meant the miners had to crawl on jagged rubble and form a human chain to remove the debris painfully hacked free by the Point Men. The stench of death flooded the ruins. Day six. Since arriving at the site three days before, Lauren Marzo, Marzan's colleague, had been confronted by the distraught families of the buried victims. One group in particular affected him. The family of Pedrito Die. The man's father, his aunt and uncle, and his young wife Adela would stand there gazing at Lauren with dark, sombre eyes. The father would thrust out a picture of the smiling, muscular young cook. His strong, Pedrito's father would say, We know he's still alive. Please don't give up. Day seven. Jingjing Jing listened to the steady tapping as Arnell thumped a piece of pipe against the thick beam above their heads. But the rescuers' voices and the sounds of their excavations seemed to grow distant. Then they were gone altogether. "'We're here,' Jingjing Jing continued to shout weakly. "'We're still alive!' "'William,' Arnell whispered. William did not answer. "'Feel his pulse,' Jingjing Jing said." After a long silence, Arnel said, He's gone. Lauren Marzo watched British and Japanese members of the International Rescue Corps climb down the rubble to the car park. For several hours, they had probed the ruins with ultra-sensitive microphones, listening for the tapping that the miners had reported. But they had heard only the grinding of the debris from the aftershocks. Is there any hope? Lauren asked a bone-tired volunteer. The man shook his head. That afternoon, the foreign teams packed their equipment and left. Day eight. In the miners' tent, the men were clumped round a smoky fire, their faces slack with exhaustion. Some had hardly slept for days, yet they continued their work without complaint. Day nine. When miners tunnelling towards the gym struck crushed steel filing cabinets, they used a cutting torch that accidentally ignited the barrier. Choking smoke filled the tunnel, and embers spread through the rubble. The miners grabbed a thick fire hose and picked their way up the drunken staircase of smashed concrete. Do you smell smoke? Jingjing asked. Arnel had been dozing, but now he thrashed in panic, and hot bolts of pain shot up his injured arm. The smoke grew thicker. He coughed until his chest felt broken. Desperately, he sucked for air. Arnel felt his consciousness fade and he floated into a bright sky like a child's balloon. Jingjing felt the smoke thinning and stretched her leg to prod him. Speak to me, she shouted. Don't go away. Arnel felt the sunlight fade as he shuddered awake. Arnel, where are you? It was Jingjing's voice. He raised his free hand stiffly to his face. His flesh was as cold as clay. I was dead, he realised, but it was not my time. Day 10. Using a jackhammer, the miners punched through the thick lift shaft walls at each landing to search the rubble. By late afternoon, they had reached the third floor. Suddenly, one miner heard faint cries from below. If anyone's alive, he bellowed, answer so we can follow the sound of your voice. A man replied with surprising strength, There are two of us, and we're still alive. I have a woman with me. Pablo Binwag, a miner, shook with excitement. We'll do our best to get you out, he shouted. Day 11. Jingjing lay in the dark, listening to the thud of the jackhammer pounding the rubble. Then, with a splintering crack, dazzling light flooded the cave. Her dust-caked face was bathed with a sweet, cool draught. Men's voices were calling her. Suddenly, she comprehended. Squinting against the glare, she crawled beneath the jutting debris and into the strong, muddy hands of the miners. She was thin and weak, but her voice was still clear and strong. Help Arnel, she begged. His hand is pinned. Arnel clenched his jaw against the pain as the miners sawed through a wooden frame to free him. Then they were lifting him, Swaddling his bloated hand in a piece of cloth, Arnell's face flooded with tears. As the miners carried him through the car park, he reached out with his uninjured hand to touch the men who had risked so much to save him. Day thirteen. Norman Canangng, one of the rescue team leaders, crawled into the basement tunnel and wormed his way near the collapsed generator room. He met another engineer who grabbed hold of his arm in excitement. There's somebody alive, the engineer said. We heard tapping and a man's voice. Pedrito Dye had heard the noise of sledgehammers on concrete so clearly for so long that he was certain rescue was near. Then, for at least a day, there had been no sound at all. In those hours, he had shouted until his throat was raw. I'm here! I'm alive! He had found a length of pipe and had begun to hit it against nearby pipes but the only response was random grinding as the rubble shifted. Slowly, the realisation came that he would never be found. He knew what had to be done. Twisting in the dark, he found a knob of concrete behind his head. He slammed his shoulders back and began to smash his head into the concrete, again and again, each blow bringing him closer to the final sleep of death. Then he felt invisible hands holding him back, He tried to move, but they gripped him firmly and gently. He understood, I don't have to die. For the first time in days, he slept well. Then, as he dozed off again, he heard men's voices close by. He filled his lungs with fetid air and shouted, I'm here! Please help me! But there was no answer. Day 14 The miners snaked their way through the basement rubble and prepared to assault a concrete beam with their jackhammers. As they shifted their tools, they heard a man's voice weakly through the concrete. Stunned, one of the miners yelled, Relax, we'll get you out. The jackhammer pounded a final tattoo and Pedrito's cave burst with hot light. The miners slid a wooden backboard through the narrow hole and Pedrito lay down on it. He was alive. After 11 days trapped in the Hyatt ruins, Arnel Calabia's injured right hand was gangrenous. Surgeons amputated three fingers, but he was otherwise unharmed. Luisa Jingjing Mallorca suffered only minor cuts and bruises. Pedrito Dai survived 14 days beneath the debris without serious injuries. Citing the exemplary acts of heroism of the miners, then Philippine President Corazon Aquino issued a presidential award. Commending their tireless and unselfish deeds performed under extreme risk to life. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.